Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. I'm Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. And today I'm delighted to have an old friend and a colleague, uh, Ren Smith, who's the Interpretive Programs Manager at Bernheim Arboretum and Research Forest. Ren, it is so good to see you again. It is great to see you too, Tim. You reminded me in a little conversation we had um, in setting this up that it was 2004 that we met when you coming to a trainer's course, was that it? Yes. I'm Actually, I think I might have met you before that because I probably attended an NAI conference, so I'm sure I would have met you a little bit before that, probably in 2002, maybe. Um, and then, but I actually had a chance to spend some time with, with, with you and Lisa who were doing that training in Florida in 2004. So over 20 years, about 20 years. Cool. Well, uh, I want to delve back a little deeper into your history. Uh, where did you grow up? What, what direct got you into this amazing field? Well, I grew up in, in the small town of Shelbyville, Kentucky, which is about Oh, an hour from where I'm currently working, one of the things that I think got me into this field, first, you know, parents who camped and took four squirrely kids with heavy camping gear back when the days when those canvas tents and all of that. So that when both worked full-time jobs, but whenever they got a long weekend, that's what we did. So that was a really a, a wonderful thing to have in my background. But we also made a lot of day trips to this new place. It hadn't been opened all that long when I was a kid and it was called Bernheim Forest or now Bernheim Arboretum and Research Forest. We would make a trip from Shelbyville about four times a year, probably in every season. And Tillman was at Bernheim where I met you know, I saw adults who were excited about bugs and snakes and birds and trees and all the kinds of loved as a child. And I found out that those people got paid for that. So I think Bernheim was a place that sort of crystallized the idea that you could get paid for doing stuff like this. I mean, it, yeah, I think it really, really sort of crystallized. One of the things that happened, you know, sometimes you get this idea in your head and you hold on to it and nurture it, which is what I'm learning from a lot of these other talking story podcasts that I've listened to is we all take a circuitous route. And so I actually kind of held on to this idea of being a naturalist or park ranger. I don't know if I had a name for it at the time, but I remember telling my high school guidance counselor that I wanted to be one of those things when I was in high school and he eh, good good hearted I'm sure with good intention told me that there would be no jobs in the outdoors for women oh my so that really happened you know and that would have been I graduated in 71 and because um Shelbyville was somewhat of a sheltered kind of community that I grew up in I thought adults knew what they were talking about and he he told me I should major in elementary education so that's what I started out doing um, went to Eastern Kentucky University which ended up being a really good move for me and started out elementary education major but in my second year this is a sophomore year the uh while the when I was taking one of those non-biology biology classes and the professor showed a film of an elk migration off the Olympia Peninsula. And I had one of those moments, you know, where the hairs stand on the back of your neck and you know something's, something is happening inside. So I, um, as shy person that I was and sometimes still am, I went up to, to this professor afterwards and said, Dr. Rudersdorf, I'm an elementary education major, but I'm making a terrible mistake. I don't want to be the teacher who's having to finagle with parents and principals to take kids on a field trip. I want to be the person who people come to see the place at the place where they come, where they have those field trips. And good old Dr. Rudersdorf said, well, this is the beginning of your sophomore year. You should be in wildlife management. So so some so you see that one person put down a barrier, another person built a bridge. And that was just something that I kind of remember. He built this bridge because I got was able to make a few switches in my schedule. 
and Salvatore wildlife management major. And that wasn't still quite, quite where I fit. It was good, it was getting closer. Um, there was only one other woman in that whole program. Most of them were interested in like managing game preserves or re research and things like that. But, but then they opened up uh, an environmental resource program. That was one much closer to my own heart. That one, that was a lot of field courses and a lot of opportunity to take electives like in um, recreation, parks and recreation and all of those good things. So to me, it made sense that if you're interested in working with people and parks, then biology and that park connection seemed really important. I'm just struck by the similarity between your upbringing and Lisa Brochu, my wife, my partner and everything, uh, and that her family camped a lot. My dad's idea of camping was an inexpensive motel. And, <laughs> so, and I visited exactly uh, one national park in my first 18 years. And it just wasn't part of my upbringing. I was going to be a biology teacher. And yet we both had naturalist jobs early on in our career. So um, I, and I'm also struck by, you know, Enos Mills emphasized that he trained women to be guides. He felt women were intuitively attuned to nature and were good at it. Harkened to him as kind of a, one of the early leaders in our field. You have ended up where you first saw someone doing this. Yes. And I'm fairly, you know, grateful not only to Dr. Rudersdorf, but one of the things that happened when I was at Eastern, I just have to have to mention someone who I feel like was a really big mentor to me. And this was a woman named Dr. Cheryl Steffen. And she was in the Parks and Recreation Department. So she was she was teaching environmental education courses, outdoor education outdoor recreation for special special populations. She was doing all this kind of thing from a whole different department. Um, in fact, my, my advisor pulled me into his office one day and he said, I just don't understand why you're taking all these Mickey Mouse classes for your electives. That's what he, that's what he thought of parks and recreation, these Mickey Mouse classes for your electives. And so I told him a little bit about this incredible professor who was doing these amazing courses that were so engaging and you know, you know, if she didn't show up for class, the whole class was disappointed. That's how good she was. And uh, she got us out in the field a lot. Uh, I, I, we got to do a lot of hands-on um, environmental education and all this kinds of stuff. But she was, she was a wonderful. And I finally introduced him to her and said, you've got to see what she's doing. And so later on, he began to suggest that students take her courses. So I feel like, all right. She was great. She was absolutely wonderful. Well, that's great. You had good people helping you put together a background that set you up to do what you do. I know Lisa's program that she had at Texas A&M was environmental interpretation. It was already structured around giving her that broad background. I had a zoology undergrad and I, I used to joke it should have been called necrology because I think the only live animals we saw in four years of zoology study were uh, protozoans. And mm -hmm. um, we we once, in one class, we did a thing where we, we mapped 18 roosters battling each other in a shed. And we, you know, recorded their interactions, territoriality, who's the dominant rooster, all that kind of thing. And I thought, that's not why I went into zoology. I went into zoology because I was fascinated with the critters out on the ground around where I grew up in the water. Tim, I think you're getting at something that's really important. A lot of times we have to kind of find our own way because it's not it's not necessarily established in a lot of places. You know, you have to kind of a good intuition is very helpful. So if you've got that, it's a it's a wonderful trait to be lucky enough to be born with. And uh, I highly encourage people to pay attention to to that sense that. There's not necessarily just a straight shot. Here's what you do to get to there. It's not always really mapped out in a lot of situations, and especially in communities that are underrepresented in the field. I mean, I really, I feel like it's kind of my way of paying it forward is to encourage people to go after the thing that people might be naysaying and to try to encourage where it feels like it really could be helpful, not to give false encouragement, but just to 
you know, try to help people to realize that there are avenues and you might have to finagle a bit to get there. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, I'm really aware that very few times in your life, what are your degrees in? What what were your grades like? I First of all, as an undergrad, my first two years, um, I came very close to flunking out. I was a terrible student. I was I actually have a slacker talk I give when I teach college classes where I go, if if you thought of yourself or someone else has identified you as a slacker, that was me for two years. And I, like you, I had a mentor. I had a, uh, Dr. Galbraith in the zoology department sit down with me and he said, uh, why, why are you in school? You're wasting your time. And the answer, real answer I didn't give him, which was, well, I'm having a lot of fun playing cards and shooting pool and hanging out with buddies. Uh, well, he said, well, I'm not going to register you unless I see straight B's next semester and I'm your advisor. So you're stuck. And he turned the corner for me. And uh, that was Vietnam era. I said, you know, I'll get drafted and go to Vietnam. He says, not my problem. If you're not worried about it, I'm not worried about it. It was kind of tough love. But yeah. uh, I've said to students many times, you know, if you're not finding your way slow down and figure out a different path, find a path you enjoy, because I I learned I needed to switch over to botany for a master's, where the professors were all very nurturing. I, I worked for a Dr. Matten, who was a paleobotanist, and then I did a master's with Dr. Tyndall, who was a phycologist, an algae guy, and they were all very helpful, and in zoology, all I got was the kind of discouragement that goes with pre-med type training where they make you feel like only the cream's going to rise to the top and most of you aren't going to be in the cream. I can so relate. And I was so, uh, that was something else new that I learned about you is didn't realize that you'd gotten your master's in botany and that shared interest in plants as a way, as a window into, to me, plants are a window into the rest of nature. So I was glad to see that that was part of your journey as well. Well, the sto story I may or may not have told is my sister and mother were florists. So mm -hmm. I ended up delivering flowers. You know, at 16 years old, I got a driver's license. My job to deliver flowers to the funeral home or uh, eat on Mother's Day for two days before, I stood with my mother and sister and a couple other workers and we made corsages all day. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and I didn't appreciate any of that. I was, <laughs> I was required labor. That was what you did in your family. And my dad played golf and he got a free membership at his club by being the turf manager for the club. So I, I was used to him running out to the country club at five in the morning to see if the sprinklers came on when they were supposed to. And I didn't think that made an impression on me. And it really did because there came a point where I, I realized I really loved plants, plant communities. And, and maybe I should have gone into horticulture because as you know, I'm, farming coffee and cacao and we we watch each other's facebook feeds and i'm i'm a farmer these days what made you so interested in plants other than burnheim were there other things in your background that i think the fact that my parents always had a garden you know i remember planting radishes with my dad as a child and being so excited about watching them sprout and so forth and you know we had all these, we had so many meals when I was a child in which my mom would proudly proclaim that everything that we're eating came from the garden. Oh, wow. So, you know, that was, that was just, you know, part of growing up and it was gardening and going out to my aunts and uncles to pick more beans and then canning parties and all that kind of stuff. But I think for, I, I think the other reason that plants speak to me so much is that, as I said, I do think that they're a window into the rest of nature. You know, you slow down, you really, you know, you find the strange caterpillars and you, you know, the, the nest and the insects that look like thorns and all those creatures. And so I really love plants, but I really love it all. And plants to me just kind of open that door. You know, I, I think I've talked about it being for like the green door or the window into the rest of nature, all of those kinds of things. Um, I also think that plants are, for me, somebody who has to learn by doing, they're multisensory. So, you know, you can smell them, eat them, so many of them, touch them, you know, just 
be imaginative with them. So I love that kind of multi-sensory connections that plants provide. And they're portable. You know, you can find plants anywhere. There's always something you can say about a plant and find interesting and, a, and something to wonder about and marvel. And they, they are the original alchemists. You know, they turn things that are almost invisible into solid trunk trees, roots, all of that stuff. So it's, they're powerful. And they're calming. Like right, right now I'm looking out a window at a, you know, it's just a wall of trees and there's a little breeze and, you know, I could just kind of breathe that in and peaceful. I have to be around green. I don't know how anybody lives in a place where there's where they're not surrounded by green. Yeah, I'm afraid that's what we love about Hawaii is the lifestyle is very much nature is all around us all the time. I I was aware as you talked that I had botany professors that were good interpreters, that were good storytellers. Mm -hmm. And instead of just learning that an L after the scientific name meant that Linnaeus named it, they would tell stories about why Linnaeus named it what it, its scientific name is. And I, they brought Linnaeus alive to me as a, yes. a, a Swedish botanist that uh, we joked about a professor who was wonderful, uh, who would talk about potatoes. We called him not to his face, but in background, Dr. Salinum tuberosum, because <laughs> he had done research in candies with the Chilean uh, native people who subsist on, uh, you know, he used to say 70 or 80 varieties of potatoes. But I was aware it was the storytelling that was captivating that I, yeah. I, hadn't, I hadn't got that, gotten that during all the dissection and uh, things in zoology. So it was really cool. Um, I know you have the word research in the Bernheim Arboretum and Research Forest name. What kind of research goes on there? Oh, my goodness. There is so much. Uh, they do research on on uh, the golden eagle. We actually have golden eagles that come through Bernheim and in the winter. This is their winter hunting grounds. And um, they do a lot of research on um, the night jars, you know, our are whippoorwills and all those kinds of birds that are that so little is known about. Uh, they have a modus um, program for migratory uh, songbirds. Um, there's also right now there's a lot of research being done. Well, actually, it's been going on for 20 years on regenerative uh, oak. You know the process of oaks regenerating in hickory in the in the forest after a burn because we do controlled burnings here. So there's just a lot of research that continues to happen. Um, we have we have uh, students from Bullitt County who do research on our beehives. How about that? You know, the, you know, figuring out whether or not we need to treat them for mites or not, and all kinds of stuff that they do. So part of our our amazing volunteer naturalist bee team work with these high school students. So uh, research happens on many levels here at Bernheim. Always learning something new. We're finding creatures that we didn't know were here. Sometimes a lot of bio inventory work um, so that we can try to protect, you know, Bernheim um, from things like pipeline and all this kinds of stuff by locating these endangered species. And, and also, you know, the fact that this is, uh, you know, a huge forest, it provides you know, a great wildlife corridor for, you know, big forest for some big goals, some big hopes. How large is the property? How many acres? Over over sixteen thousand acres. Wow, that's so, much larger than I realized. Yes, it's the largest uh, privately owned forest east of the Mississippi. So it is it is a large forest. With so Bernheim has so many components. In addition to the research, there have, we have an amazing art program here at Bernheim. We have a uh, art coordinator who has brought some real vision to, to Bernheim and this kinds of stuff that she does. So we, we, we use many lenses, you know, that kind of lens of research and science, but all lens to connecting with nature and play and, and just good old fashioned education too. summer camps and full moon hikes. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great place to work. I've been here since 2000. So it's feels like, yeah, this is, this, this seems like, shall I say my final resting place? I don't know. <laughs> well, that sounds pretty. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
dour, but uh, I, I think that's a great thing to find where you want to be and to be there. Uh, yes. It is a 501c3, I presume? Yes. Yes. Organization? Yes. Yes. You know, I had 30 years uh, at the helm of nonprofit organizations, and I had, uh, golly, uh, 11 or 12 years working for state or federal government. And if I compare the two, I enjoyed the nonprofit much more because it was a creative environment and because in a way I enjoyed it more because we were not handed money and allowed to spend it. We had to think in terms of, is this of value to people? Do they have value enough to pay for it? I think that, I think that is one of the things that makes working for a non-for-profit both challenging and full of opportunities. You know, sometimes you don't have what you need. Like I, right now indoor space is kind of a premium for us we have you know small buildings i mean we've got this huge vision for you know all kinds of going in all kinds of interesting directions that are really creative and challenging but you know not very many solid indoor spaces for the kinds of things that you sometimes need for kinds of gatherings that might pull large people to large groups of people together to move forward or even a nature center right now, we really don't have. So I'm, I'm a person who really loved and felt like I was nurtured by nature centers. You know, Bernheim used to have one when I was a kid. And I know so many people in which they, their experience at a nature center, touching, learning, feeling comfortable. It's a place of orienting before you go out with your family. And especially if you're dealing with families who might not be as comfortable with the outdoors, I really see a need for that. So I really like talking to people who work at nature centers and what they're seeing happen in the field of interpretation and where they feel like it's going. I mean, I feel like it's really important that you get people out on the grounds that they're not just spending their whole time inside. You know, that's not what you want to have have happen. But I think to have a place where a family knows that if it rains, there's going to be some cool things to do and explore inside and before they get out, you know, before the storm passes or after or whatever. As a non-for-profit, there are, you know, there are those challenges. And for me, you know, the space that that is that would allow us to do more of what we love. But we have this amazing over 16,000 acres, so shouldn't complain too much about space, should I? No, I, I will tell you that I only had 15 acres, the nature center I ran. And yet I was adjacent to a state park and I connected to 26 miles of bike trails. So people could get to nature in a lot of different ways. We had no indoor space, or to say it differently, we had a room like 20 feet by 12 feet, and that was the only indoor space. So it caused us to look around and go, well, what else could we do in the winter? Because we can't afford to have three months where kids can't come out here. Uh, And it caused us to pitch to, I think, Mountain Bell Foundation and Kelly Ducey Foundation, private foundation that we would like to have Native American replica teepees and help kids learn about the Native American history of the Front Range of Colorado. And that ended up being a wonderful program opportunity to us. And it was great to take kids out in the dead of winter and set them down around a campfire in an 18-foot diameter teepee and share Native American lore and stories. So it I I think nature centers are cool because they they often do not have a lot of indoor space. Right. They're usually small. I mean, I don't like really like the fancy ones that are more like museums, which I love museums, but I like the intimacy of just that little space for exploring and poking around and asking questions and things like that. But one of the things that you've just done, Tim, is in sharing your story and your experience there is that, you know, Challenges, we all know this. Any of us who've been doing this work for a long time know that challenges often lead to really interesting solutions. So it's good to work in a place that is always providing challenges and opportunities for growth and rethinking things. And uh, especially when you've got a team of people that you love working with. You know, I, I think the staff here at Bernheim is phenomenal, but you know, we work with, you know, amazing volunteers. And I was, you know, I heard um the interview that you had with James Covell and you know, and all of the amazing volunteers they have at the aquarium or had. I know he's retired now, but 
you know, like 1,700, I mean, a 700, I think he said, 700 volunteers. You know, and I'm really proud of the fact that we have about 70 in our volunteer naturalist program, which of that 70, there's really, I, I can really only manage about 50 with the kinds of space that we have available to kind of keep them engaged. And, but I think about the way that they infuse Bernheim and what we do with their passion and then their commitment out in the community. They become the eyes and ears for what other people think we're doing and questions that other people have, then they're able to address that and sometimes bring it back to us. And they do 80%, they do 80% of our, um, I'd say 80% of our public programs and probably help with 80% of our field trips. And they do almost all of our night programs and we, our night programs are some of our most successful. We have a wonderful naturalist, Bill Knapper, who, who was sort of mentored by um, an amazing gentleman, Don Spain. And so, you know, work continues. You pass on what you know. And, you know, Bill has uh, kind of shepherded a group of volunteer naturalists for these sort of these night naturalist excursions that give people opportunities to learn about the full moon. And we did a Friday night firefly every single Friday in June. And all these these wonderful adventures into the night, creatures of the night programs on bats and frogs and so forth. So nighttime is a really fun time at Bernheim. But I'm off subject a little bit. I just wanted to, to, to say a few words about the role of volunteers and encourage anybody who's listening to this to value the role that volunteers can play in an organization because it's not just what they do, it's how they do it and how they mentor each other. When I first set up this volunteer naturalist program in 2002, I set it up real similar to the way a lot of master naturalist classes are set up, which I think are terrific programs. Um, but they tend to be, you know, like eight or nine sessions, maybe several hours during the day. And then you take those and then you go off and you, 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 you do some volunteer work at various places out there in the community. And sometimes you take extra classes to kind of move forward. So I set it up sort of like that. But what I discovered is people would take lots of classes and then they would be afraid that they'd forgotten what they knew and not feel comfortable in getting out in the public. So, you know, staggering them with mentored opportunities to work directly with, with what they just learned, you know, right immediately, almost like the next week, you know, you're doing a discovery station on something you learned, you're partnering with somebody, you're getting mentored by your fellow naturalist. And that makes a huge difference, you know, really. Um, so as opposed to top loading that integrating those experiences, because we have kind of a, I believe that knowledge becomes yours when you give it away, a kind of philosophy. And I think I felt like that's one of the things Jim was saying in his in his talk with you, which is just like, yep, yep, that's what I see here. I love learning about Jim's volunteer program in more detail. I've seen it in action at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And I was a big fan of the, as you heard in that podcast, of the program at Arizona Sonora Desert Museum, because I thought their kind of discovery tables out on the grounds with volunteers were amazing interpretation, just really uh, thoughtful folks doing very beautiful work with the public and using it as a dynamic for managing how people visit the property. That was a place that inspired me. So you see, NAI has had this long effect on my my career. Not only have I credited NAI with helping me find my voice, you've heard me say that in so many ways, is that it was at Tucson Desert Museum Conference. I guess that was in what, 2003, maybe? I was um, 2000, but I, yeah. It might have been the first one I ever was at. I wanted to say that one of the things that I've enjoyed about my involvement with NAI is from the first time I went to a conference, which was probably around 2000, um, it's like there's this kind of kindness, you know, culture of people helping and supporting each other. So what I think is a culture of kindness is a part of the community and I wanted to bring that to Bernheim um, in the way of our volunteer naturalist program. So uh, these people are curious and they're kind and you know that's just during the kinds of years that we've had lately having being surrounded by beauty and kindness is just incredibly important and I feel 
I don't take it for granted, nor do I take them for granted. I think that's very good. I know for me, all those years of going to national conferences and regional workshops with NAI and before that with the Association of Interpretive Naturalists, getting to know some of these unique personalities and the incredible programming they did. Um, and everybody was always so open about uh, sharing ideas. They, you know, I think in fairness, we all have to be uh, thoughtful and legal in how we attribute other people's work to them. But interpreters expect that they're going to be copied and they expect to copy other people that uh, we learn from each other. And I think that's very cool. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, because you mentioned field trips and you mentioned public programming, what kind of difference or similarities do you see between environmental education and interpretation? I do see an overlap. I I mean, when I was a young naturalist at Otter Creek Park, which is where I got my first job in the outdoors, um, I was doing a lot of the field trips, you know, working with the big groups of school kids and their teachers and, you know, post-visit, po you know, pre-visit, post-visit activities and things like that. I feel that there is, for me, you know, I would get sent to the national, got sent to a couple of the national conferences, you know, the, the National Association for Environmental Ed and wonderful organization. Um, I think with NAI, one of the things is that it's, I guess it feels like it's a serves a broader community you know you often think of interpretation as being something that's maybe more holistic uh, aimed at the families and the communities and all of that it's more you know for me it's more informal although people certainly do informal environmental education that's part of summer camps and things like that but i think for me the biggest difference is that the it's 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 a kind of passion that i i don't know i feel like I have certainly found my people, as they say, when it comes to the interpretive field. And I, I've never been able to quite put my finger on, on the biggest difference. Of course, there's these standards that most environmental education programs have to meet in order for a field trip to come to your school. And it kind of puts things in a more narrow focus, um, the cause of those. And, and again, I think great environmental education programs, which I think Bernheim has, are also very interpretive and include elements of interpretation, just like a good interpretation should include some environmental education components. You want people to learn things and cultivate their curiosity. Getting acquainted with Sam Hamm and going to some of his trainings in uh, Central America and Australia, I he really throws at you the research behind a lot of this, that uh, if you want people's attitudes and behaviors to change, they have to think more deeply about things. And getting people to think more deeply isn't a matter of deluging them with information that may actually do the opposite. I love it that our interpretive principles emphasize provocation, uh, inspiration lighting this pilot light in somebody that causes them every time they come near something we've turned them on to, they want to learn more and they do it on their own. You can have environmental education without any of those things and it'd be, you know, they've done this, this, and this, but without, these are the things that make interpretation, interpretation and why we do what we do, right? Well, we test people uh, when we put them in educational programs. I always tell people, if, if you think you can't learn things without passion, you sure can. I'm going to drive a car. I learned that little rule of the road, and I take the test. And I really didn't, wasn't delighted by any of that. They just, uh, I've learned many things in my life just with the motivation that they, they wouldn't let me go do something else if I didn't learn it. We work in this area of where the motivation's got to be intrinsic. Lisa and I walked into one of your training activities at Bernheim one day. Do you remember that? I absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up. I had a note here to remind myself to say how much that meant to me. I know you're not not reminding me of this because you want me to, to toot your all's horn, but I wanted to say that because I think it was actually either my first or second CIG training ever. I knocked on my door. I was teaching the class. It was like the first day of a CIG class. 
And that was like such an amazing thing as a young interpreter. I mean, I was still pretty young then. It wasn't as young as wasn't a young whippersnapper, but a young with the idea of teaching CIG courses. It was again my first or second one. And that got me off to such a great start. And you know, the the all the folks in the class were so pleased. And you know, it was, it was, it was such a gift. And that generosity of spirit, I think, has served, you know. It serves interpretation really well when people like you and Lisa bring that to, you know, to your work and you did and you do. And um, and it's a reminder that those things matter, those going above and beyond matter. And, and, and you don't forget it. I've not forgotten that. Yeah, it was delightful because uh, over a period of a dozen years, we trained over a thousand trainers, only about half. 40% somewhere in there ever finished the CIT, the Certified Interpretive Trainer Credential and become trainers. But we had very few opportunities to, to see somebody in action. And it was really fun to do that. And I we thought you were being wonderful in, with your group. How did you learn about this CIG program and are you still training in it? Yes. I, in fact, I had the first training that I've had since since the COVID shutdown. I didn't really want to do online interpretation. I just, that that wasn't something I wanted to do or offer to our volunteer naturalists because they always, you know, we always have some spaces for them. Um, I heard about it, I'm sure, at the national conference. If we remember having some discussions with um, Mike and Julie Adams about it and Steve Kickner, Kitch, Steve Pickard. Um, and I remember thinking at first that it sounded like it might stifle creativity. I remember thinking, you know, some sort of rubric like that might stifle creativity. I remember being a little hesitant, but then I went to, I guess Lisa was doing a presentation at an NEI conference on it. And it's like, you know, any artist, any creative soul needs structure in order to create from and know when you can deviate from those rules, whether you're painting or using music or whatever. And I don't know whether she used that analogy or it just kind of came to me, me from a discussion I had with someone else, but that has really made sense. And in, and I've really loved it. You know, I've loved getting um, uh, the, cert, the cert, becoming a certified interpretive guide trainer. And uh, I thought you and Lisa did such a great job ushering us through that. And some of those people who are in that class, it's so nice to still see their work and, you know, find, find them, find out where they are and what they're doing. I see them on Facebook sometimes. And I, so I think the other reason that I became interested in it is because I wanted to make sure that our volunteer naturalists didn't just feel like they needed to know the names of plants and animals and you know all geology i wanted them to understand and i wanted to have the language to help train them so i really did it more as a as a way to have the language myself for training volunteers who would be working you know adding interpretive you know that that whole way of sharing information and dialoguing with people i really wanted that for them um, and for myself, but so I could be a good and effective facilitator of that uh, messaging with them. You know, also being able to meet and work with other agencies. I think it's really helped with collaborating with others, like some state parks people are here or fish and wildlife. So it really builds community. That's the thing that I really have loved about it. That it's in the same sense that we, I mean, when I first when I first went to uh, NAI conference and realized that I had been doing interpretive work all my life, but I didn't have a word for it. I've heard other people on your on your uh, podcast say this, but to suddenly have some um, common language, you know, for talking and moving forward, you have to have a common vocabulary that you all understand, like, you know, the the word theme might be something, as we know, is very different from a, a teaching situation where they say their theme is on bats versus, you know, a theme that we might have on bats that is more of a, themat, a statement about the importance of bats in, in our ecosystem kind of approach. So the opportunity to get that training and to still use it. I only do that about once a year here right now, but I'm really wanting one of my coworkers to get certified as well, because I really want us to have the opportunity to, I want to be able to do it more than once a year. And when it's just, just me as, I'm 
I, once a year is about is about as much as I can. We have really full schedule, full schedule. So many things going on. That once a year is about right for me right now. You let other agencies have people come to it, or you have people. Is it oh all yes, we. Yes, it's uh, usually I save about five spots for a volunteer naturalist. I do a lot of training with them and in, in basic interpretation. That's not a CIG stuff. It's just the simple things that you know that that you would do with this to treat visitors and all that kind of stuff and questioning strategies and things. But yeah, it's been, you know, the, the fact that we get to know some of these other agencies around us. And for a while, and up again, we had a whole little network of building on anybody who took the certified interpretive guide training here would become part of the network. And we would have a, a meeting every other month for about three hours, focusing on one of the interpretive things that people felt they wanted to continue to work on. And we did that we always made sure that there was some opportunity to have a little look around at another site, learn what they're doing at their site, but also always at least an hour and a half, two hour training session to help work on something that the group had decided on. And I would really like to reinst reinstall that, you know, as we move past COVID to have that network again of of people. And, and besides that, it also gives those who are needing to stay certified, keeps them motivated to to stay certified because they're seeing these interpreters from all over the place doing amazing things. And we're learning about folks that are within a day's drive from us at least. So when I hear you say that you like doing it face to face, you didn't want to do the online ones. I would agree with you. I think the face to face ones are always better. However, in our particular isolated situation. Yes. We offer a certified interpretive guide course. We'll get two or three signups. They require a minimum of five to hold a class. And uh, we're just in a, a rural area. And the learning curve in Hawaii for adopting the certified interpretive guide has been slower. One of the things that happens in what I would call paradise tourism is the resource trumps everything. People have a great time, even when they don't have the best guide in the world. And um, it's it's a challenge to get uh, tour companies to invest in the training. And some of them have said to me, well, I sent a couple of people and I got the CIG and then they left me and went to a company that paid more, or more glamorous setting. Mm -hmm. When pandemic came along, for me, it was keeping my kind of my foot in the water. You know, the profession for me is uh, so important that I, I love talking to people like you and I love doing it. And interestingly, by doing the course remotely, we've had to be creative about how to make it more interactive. We've had people, uh, we've had a, a woman from Russia, a couple from the Philippines, just a lot of really interesting locations where they also don't have much access to training. They value that that Zoom has given them that interaction. So, yeah, I agree that technology is. I mean, it certainly got us through the the pandemic without losing tons of volunteers. I mean, our volunteer naturalist. I mean, I I, I sort of make a made a pledge that I would do at least a coffee Zoom every single Saturday. You know, so that we could because we'd already gotten a new group that was being mentored by the by the other group back and started in January of that year, and so you just couldn't drop that. So, you know, I, I knew I had to learn how to do Zoom and keep those and do training. So, I mean, I did training classes on Zoom and I felt like they it worked pretty well. You know, if you've got the chat rooms and you can have discussions and things like that. So, I mean, I'm, I feel like the, the ability to keep things moving is so important and that in Zoom has been such a great tool. But the CIG to me, I, I, I might, I might buckle down and and take the plunge because you do. I mean, I love the fact that you can connect with people from all over. I mean, we had a volunteer who moved way out of state, and we were able to work with him when he was in Dakota, and he could he could do trainings with us. And you know, we did a lot of. Uh, he was had worked with the National Park Service, so we were doing a lot of audience centered engagements and stuff like that, and joint trainings together. And he was, you know. Those kinds of things, those opportunities that technology provides for us are, you know, they're, they're, they're gifts. I mean, they certainly have their challenges and their limitations, but 
I, I agree. I'm glad that you've had that because in your isolated situation there, Tim, I know, and I know how much interpretation means to you. So to be able to stay engaged and continue to to hone your gifts and learn new things, is, it's wonderful. It really is. I would have to mention that Ren Smith's name comes up every time we teach the poetry model. Is there a reason for that? <laughs> a reason for that? You have to take credit. For you, well, of course, of course, I, you know, you can't take any credit for something whole cloth because so much of that came by way of people like Sam Ham and his amazing acronyms that he'd used. Um, but when I took the CIG training, you remember there was a short period of time where the acronym was parole. Yeah. And, and that just jarred with me. <laughs> Because it's like, of course, at that time we had a presidential candidate. <laughs> Not anything against 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 him, but the I like it when an acronym makes sense when it sort of reflects something that, you know. So I was playing around with the fact that interpretation and poetry have so many things in common. You know, you're using something small to elicit an understanding of something larger, or something larger to focus in on something small. You know, you're you're using tangibles, you know, a good poem has a lot of tangible things that point to intangible ideas. And, you know, as a poet, I could see the relationship there. But I didn't really feel like, you know, so what I toyed with the why for a long time, the the you part of that, so, you know, the POT. So what I, I credit Bill, um, William Lewis, you know, his little book, his Interpreting for Park Visitors. And he wrote beautifully about the inter what was called the interactive threesome at the time. You know, I think it's still, I think the term may have changed a little bit there. But his interactive threesome is the place where, in my mind, you know, you, the interpreter, meets your visitor at your site. So it made this nice little Y intersection. And to me, that's the creative part, which is also the part of poetry it makes sense. It's creative. And because when I first thought about adding the why for you, to be honest with you, I didn't quite, you know, what we do, we're always reminding ourselves that it's not about us, right? We're, we're nervous and you suddenly having this little talk with yourself, hey, you know, Ren, it's not about you. <laughs> but in a sense it is, but it's also about the visitor and it's the site or the resource. It's all that coming together. So. You know, I thought, I think William Lewis was so right on that. And so I really love that little piece. And so with that, that's, that empowered me to say something to you and Lisa at a conference where it's like, hey, hey, I've been playing around with this poetry thing. Is it okay if I, how do you feel about me kind of changing parole to poetry for my workshops and stuff like that? So I was really glad that you all embraced that. So does that answer your question, Tim? We didn't just embrace it. We hugged the heck out of it. Uh, we, we changed the workbook for the next printing and gave you, I hope, appropriate credit coming up with the idea. I thought it was brilliant. Back talking about P-E-R-O-T, we were using Sam Ham's T-O-R-E. The T is for thematic, organized, uh, relevant, and enjoyable. And of course, very often now today, we say engaging for the E we were putting purposeful in front of that because Lisa and I both felt it really important that people tie into their mission. What are you trying to accomplish? And um, when you brought up the you, I, I thought it was wonderful as Lisa did. And we just agreed it needed to be a part of everything because what a chance to say to people, you can't change your audience. Your audience is who they are. Uh, you can't change your resource. It is what it is. You're the one that has to continually adapt. And then it got us off in our own training to talking about what do you do to keep yourself healthy and thoughtfully plugged into your profession? And I, our uh, little wedding ring symbol is yin and yang. Wow. And right. we try to talk about the balance between your personal life and your professional life. You can be so professional that you do too much professionally and you aren't taking care of the person. And so we ask our, our participants, what do you do to take care of your personal? Do you jog? Do you write poetry? Do you swim? Do you uh, go hiking? Do you have dogs and cats you play with? Whatever. 
uh, or your, your children, your family, a big part of that. And then we go back into that professional side and, and it's a chance, as you remember, as NAI executive director, it was always an opportunity and Lisa was associate director for us to encourage people to get involved in your region or your national organization. And, um, I, I, I always have to suggest to people that uh, when you train other people, the secret is that you're learning more than they are. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. And in fact, I think that's the way mentoring is. You know, when people say that that you mentored them, it's like, well, they mentored you because it's a, it's, it's a two-way street, which is, I think, why I love interpretation. It is, it's a dialogue and it's a back and forth. And I think that happens, you know. So yes, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Well, and of course, the Maslow hierarchy of needs model that we use very often the more modern teachers of that since Maslow's way back in 54 that he wrote his articles on motivation but more modern interpreters of his model say well at the top of that is transcendence mm -hmm. where what you do is you help other people have a peak experience or get to the top of that advanced part of the model and I thought boy that's what interpreters do. We are continually helping others have a very special experience in nature or history or geography or whatever settings we put them in. What a cool thing. Do you, is there other ways you interpret you and your training? I, I, I'm going to kind of come back um, a bit to the, to the you. I mean, I think what you're saying is it is important to remind interpreters to find balance in their own lives and to, to, you know, kind of hone their own gifts and to, you know, set their own boundaries to what keeps them healthy and all of that, uh, whether we're challenging them to read more or take more walks or, or, or whatnot. But I really do think that at least where, where I work and a lot of other interpreters is that the the visitors are always changing. I mean, they're not the same group of people. You can do a CIG class and it's not the same one week, one time the next. That dynamics, that group dynamics is always different. Um, even what you learn about your site is different. Suddenly there's a discovery made at your site or some history that you thought. So to me, it's all dynamic and changing all the time. And that to me is, is the creative place. Um, I think... The, the other thing that happens is our world is changing so fast. You might be all set to go one route with a program that you're doing and you have it kind of envisioned in your head and then something, a big, big national event has happened that has just put everything in a whole different light. And so that creates a very different dynamic after a national strategy, whether it be a mass shooting or whatnot for discussions um, that makes it dynamic. I think that for me, that, that the sense that you, the interpreter and your visitor and your site, they're always in this creative dance because it's always gonna be different. That, that feels really important to me that they should definitely be taking care of themselves, but to be aware that, you know, there's new things you're learning about your site. There's new things that people, that particular group are bringing um, I like that, and I'm really grateful to William Lewis, and I'm also just really incredibly grateful to the community. So many people I've learned from, you know, I've gone to so many national conferences and in great sessions that are so inspiring. And I love the fact that that uh, interpreters are always changing and looking for new ways to reach broader communities and more diverse communities. And um, it's really exciting time and. I'm really just so glad that I found my way into this profession and any help that I can be encouraging other people to find work that they love and encouraging those who sometimes you just see people and you just know this person should be an interpreter. This person is an interpreter. They just don't know it yet. And, um, you know, be able to encourage them that way. That's one of the things I love about my job is feeling like, you know, I see volunteers who are just like, shouldn't tell them, but they should be getting paid for this someplace. <laughs> They're that good. They're, they're that good. And always, I learned so much from them. We always joke about uh, we get paid in sunsets trying to. Yes. Yes. Always pay quite as much as some other fields. But, <laughs> but, but the rewards are varied and wonderful. And uh, 
and we work with people in a very unique kind of way. I'm going to ask the silly question that near the end of this, what's your favorite plant? Why? That is so hard. Well, I would have to say I would pick a tree and that would be the sycamore tree. That's the one I always think about. So I'm going to not do something herbaceous, but something more along the arboreal line since I'm here at an arboretum. And to me, sycamore trees were just a part of my childhood. I know you've spent time around creeks looking for crawdads and, you know, that is pivotal stuff. That is the stuff that turns us into our, our young naturalists. So, you know, the sycamore always makes, if it grows along a bend of a creek, it will make that nice deep bow of water for all the little whirligig beetles and salamanders and crayfish under the flat rocks. And, you know, it's got those anaconda-like roots that you can climb barefoot on. And, you know, I just spent a lot of time around sycamore trees as a kid. And, you know, that was my place. So I still love sycamore trees. So if I had to just pick one, that's what I would pick. You know, mine probably back in the days I grew up in Illinois would have been um, maybe a, a white oak. Over here in Hawaii, it's become the mango tree. And part of it is just because I love mango fruit so much. And mango trees become these giants if you let them. But you can ac actually prune them into staying low to the ground and be kind of a big bush with a lot of fruit. And so I'm I'm doing a lot with that along with coffee and cacao. So it's kind of fun. Wow. I would just simply add that another thing that I just barely talked about when I mentioned why I really love using plants and in interpretation is um, I mentioned that to me they're a window into the rest of nature, but I more specifically, I think that they provide us ways for talking about climate change and important issues. I mean, I can almost always weave in a climate change message, sort of guerrilla marketing by talking about how in nature timing is everything. And you know, when you talk about those trees leafing out and the caterpillars or the butterflies that need to lay on those specific trees, you know, like we're here, we have the spice bush and the sassafras that the spice bush caterpillar needs. And we have the pawpaw that the zebra swallowtail needs. And you go on and on and on. And then you find out from books that written by like Doug Tallamy and his amazing work on oaks and caterpillars and how Really, when you plant an oak tree, you're planting a giant bird feeder, you know, all those kinds of things. Um, but that it's when when the timing gets off, how that really has a cascading effect. So it allows us to kind of weave in those messages while you're showing them this cool caterpillar that looks like a bird dropping, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think plants provide a lot of opportunities for us to connect people. Wonderful. Well, I'm going to wish you well with your continued work at Bernheim, and I'm going to hope that someday we get to the same conference or same geographic location and get to say hi to each other in person. But it's been great to see you again and talk about all this. Oh, it's been great talking with you too, Tim, and really seeing you again. And uh, I hope we are in the same space again sometimes. You, you have really helped guide me on a journey that I'm very appreciative of. Well, I'm sure you've uh, had a wonderful impact on a lot of lives, volunteers and children and people who come to Bernheim. So uh, I, the last thing I want to say about Bernheim is uh, I am still showing slides of things that we took, like that silo with the interpretive signs and stuff. You, you've got some brilliant uh, non-personal interpretation on the ground there that I we really enjoyed when we were there. So. Thank you. We've got a great team of people here. I think Ralph Bergman is still here, part of that team and good folks. So thank you. It's just delightful, Tim. You have a great day. And Well, thanks a lot, Ren, for joining me today. And I want to thank all of our listeners for coming to Reflections on Interpretation, Talking Story with Guides and Interpreters. I also need to thank Mark Stoffel. Mark provides the beautiful mandolin music we use in the intro and outro. In this case, Driving Me Mandolin from his coffee and cake album. Also want to invite you to take Lisa Brochu's interpretive planning course, August 21st to 24th, 8 to 11 a.m. Hawaii time via Zoom. You can learn more at heartfeltassociates.com. And next week on Friday, we'll have Clark Hancock, a great uh, trainer and consultant in interpretation out of Austin, Texas. So we'll see you then. Have a wonderful week. 
Aloha. Aloha.